You heard our passage read there just a moment ago, uh, and no doubt you said to yourself, yes, another sermon on sin. I am so excited. I was hoping that was going to be the case this morning. Um, It's true that we have not yet turned the corner in our study of Romans into the, we can call it the good news section of the letter. Um, Paul is very much still uh, illustrating our need. Uh, So this morning is uh, not necessarily... uh, uplifting, I would say. It is not a, not a fun sermon, but it's a necessary sermon. Um, and, and so we're, we're blessed in that. We are blessed by it in that it is, it is the darkness that we need to acknowledge so that we can see how bright the light of Christ really is. And sometimes we avoid looking at the darkness. We avoid being honest about it. Um, but that's really been one of the blessings of this study of Romans. We've been in it for 10 weeks now and really just been hitting sin hard and not looking away. And it's important for us to do that if we're going to understand just how great our salvation in Christ is. Uh, And you've heard Frank describe this passage that we're going to study today as Paul's closing arguments of this first section of Romans. And it very much is that. And we'll even see sort of a courtroom language and a courtroom approach to it. This morning, we're going to take a little bit of a broad view rather than sort of itemizing sins this morning. We're going to take a broad view because it is Paul's closing arguments of the section. Uh, We're going to sort of pull out the main themes and and try to make sure we understand what he's been trying to say all along. So I'm going to establish some framework that hopefully helps us understand what he's saying and why he's saying it. We're going to look at the language he uses, and then we're going to study a little bit of uh, what that actually means for us. But I'm going to go ahead and pray again before we do that uh, because we're going to be talking about sin this morning and um, unless the Holy Spirit enters and convicts us and opens our eyes to the reality of sin and the darkness of sin, it's all just going to be foolishness. And so I'm going to lean heavy on the Holy Spirit this morning. So would you all please pray with me? Father God, this morning we, we come before you humbly submitting ourselves to your word and we thank you for your word uh, in the way that it teaches us Uh, We thank you for your law in the way that it reveals your character and your will. And Holy Spirit, we pray that you would uh, give us eyes to see the truth. Help us see where we have deceived ourselves into believing things are better than they are, into a false assurance, and help us see the truth of our sin this morning so that we can deal with it and enter into the life that you called us to. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when I was in college, I was a part of an organization, a ministry that is known for being very uh, aggressive in its approach to evangelism. And I spent a summer with this organization on one of their uh, missions trips for college students. And I spent the summer in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, of all places, living with about 50 other students in a beach house yards from, from the beach, yards from the water. And the idea is to, to go in during the summer, kind of infiltrate uh, the community there and bring the gospel to bear on the community, uh, both the people that live there and just the tons of tourists that cycle through. And so uh, meet all of our neighbors. Um, I worked in a grocery store stocking shelves. Um, and part of our time there was spent actually going out onto the beach and just striking up conversation with people with the intent of steering the conversation towards issues of salvation, towards the gospel. Um, we got training on how to do that exactly. It uh, doesn't mean I wasn't terrified to do it. I, I was. Um, but for that reason, it was really one of the most stretching times for me in my faith uh, in a positive way. Um, so, you know, we were in the South, 
And uh, for the most part, people were pretty uh, polite and cordial about it, right? So they were, uh, they were sunbathing on the beach, and they didn't have anywhere to go. They planned on being there for a few hours. So they didn't really mind kind of shooting the breeze with, you know, a nice young man about church. So the trouble is, myself and my partners, we weren't really content just to have a nice surface-level conversation about church. That's not why we were there. And so we would inevitably press on them a little bit and ask them some questions. And really, inevitably, the, the conversation would involve me asking them some question like, if you were to die tonight, how confident are you that you would go to heaven? Which, you know, is a perfectly natural question to ask of someone I just met, right? Um, like, you, you don't know me, but let's imagine you dying for a moment, and let's talk about that in front of your children. So we would, we would enter into this conversation, and really, I, I, don't mean to, I don't mean to throw that style of evangelism under the bus um, or really discredit it in any way. Um, I, I've seen God use it many times and in many ways, but I, I bring it up to uh, really illustrate this point, and that is, Nine out of ten people responded to that question the exact same way. Almost every person I asked had a similar answer to that question. And again, they were, they were polite about it, um, but almost every person would, would pause, and then they would, granted, they're taken off guard. They would pause, they would shrug their shoulders, purse their lips, to really betray kind of a lack of confidence in what they're about to say. And then they would articulate something like this. I I don't know. I I believe in God. I call myself a Christian. I go to church. I think I'm a good person. I do more good than bad. I think God knows my heart. I'm, I'm pretty confident that I would go to heaven probably a six or seven on a scale of one to ten, right? Which is the total generic safe answer. So almost every person, no exaggeration to say nine out of ten people answered similar to that. So here's what I learned on that beach that summer and has been reinforced to me over and over again in ministry. Uh, A couple things. The first thing is this. A lot of people are generally pretty lazy and apathetic about questions regarding their own eternal purpose and destiny in that they don't really engage the question. And so it's kind of like, well, I'll say this. There are a lot of reasons why I think that might be the case. And I think not the least of which is perhaps our affluence and our ability really just to entertain ourselves into numbness. And so for us, when confronted with that, whether it's the spirit pressing us on that question, whether it's someone bringing up the question, it's kind of like, oh, dude, that's a, that's a deep question. I just got home from work. I don't really want to deal with that right now. I just want to watch TV. Can I just watch TV? I just want to veg out. And so we kind of entertain ourselves into numbness, and we press kind of big questions off to the side, and they just get pushed to the back burner, to the back burner, and we're just continually numbed by what's right in front of us. That's, that's one of the things. The second thing is this. Um, I've, I've found that many people, and these are church-going people, really operate with a half-thought-through gospel that they're really only half-committed to. Okay? These are church-going people with a, with a half-thought-through gospel that they're really only half-committed to. And, and when pressed to kind of articulate what they believe, you find out very quickly that this is not the gospel of Jesus Christ that's found in the Scriptures. And this is, in fact, a false gospel. 
And this false gospel is prevalent. It is everywhere. And this false gospel has these characteristics. There is usually some nondescript higher power that usually gets assigned to the name God. And this nondescript higher power judges people on a scale system, right? Good deeds on one side, bad deeds on the other. Um, and in this false gospel, one's eternity depends upon which way the scale tips, right? Do your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds? And typically what I find in this false gospel as people articulate it to me is that most people are pretty confident that the scale's gonna tip in their favor. Or at least that this higher power is gonna give them the benefit of the doubt, right? Kind of believe the best about them like mom does, okay? Which, by the way, is very easy to believe. It's very easy that your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, that you're more good than bad if you get to define what's good and bad which is also a hallmark of our present-day culture, okay? So it, it's no wonder that people believe, yeah, I think the scales are going to tip in my favor. And then <clears throat> at the core of this, there's this belief that I'm right with God because I'm a good person, okay? Uh, this core belief, I'm right with God because I'm a good person. And then all of my church activities all of my Sunday attendance, all of my giving statements, all of my quiet times, even all my political allegiances, all, everything, all of my church stuff, just, I just pile it on to kind of seal the deal. I think I'm good with God, but here, just in case, let me just seal the deal with all this kind of religious stuff. We're good. I'm go- look, look, at, look at the evidence. I'm, I'm golden. I'm good with God. Me and him are close. The 21st century American brand of this false gospel is incredibly destructive in that it claims association with Jesus but really has no need for him, right? It, it claims, yeah, I'm, I'm on team Jesus. I, I like Jesus, but really in my religious system, there's no need for Jesus because I'm already right with God because I'm a good person. And if you believe that you're already right with God, that you're restored to God based on your works, and that you are more good than bad, and in fact your sin is minimal to begin with, if you believe that, then what need do you have for a Savior who takes away the sins of the world? What, what need do you have for grace if you've already earned it? And what need do you have for dying to self and for being transformed and for the Holy Spirit to enter into your life and change you and mold you into the image of God if you've already arrived. See, this, this is a false gospel of self-sufficiency and self-righteousness. And the danger in it is that it breeds a false assurance of being right with God apart from Christ. It's a false gospel of self-righteousness that breeds a false assurance of being right with God apart from Christ. And the first century Jewish brand of this false gospel uh, was the belief that lineage and adherence to the law was what made a person righteous. And so it's this belief that being a descendant of Abraham, being circumcised, observing the Sabbath, so on and so forth, made one right with God. It's not totally different than the false gospel we see today, the form that it takes today, is it? And as we said previously, what need do you have for a savior if you've already earned it, if you're already restored? 
And so this is the, this is the prevalent belief of Paul's day. This is a prevalent gospel that people subscribe to in Paul's day. And so it, it becomes the target of a lot of his letters, his, letters to the, his letter to the Romans that we're reading now, his letter to the Galatians, his letter to the Ephesians, has this false gospel in its sight. And you can see, as we look back now, and as we've spent 10 weeks covering three chapters, this huge section of Paul's letter, the whole first part, you can see why Paul would choose to do that. You can see now, once we look at it through this lens, why Paul would choose to spend such a huge time systematically dismantling a false gospel of self-righteousness. He is illuminating our need before he unpacks the beauty of the solution. This is the building tension before the release, which is what we're going to get to next week when we celebrate the incredibly good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. And this really does serve, this passage that we have today, it really does serve as kind of a closing argument to this, to this section. So like I said, we're going to take a little bit of a broad view. Um, and it really does have a uh, kind of courtroom language flavor to it. And so we're going to frame it in that way. And um, here's what I felt like would be helpful for us this morning. Uh, the Apostle Paul, uh, the letter of Romans is just incredibly profound and rich and beautiful. And the Apostle Paul has this tendency when he's writing to weave a whole bunch of things together, right? And he's not necessarily the most linear thinker. He'll plant a seed and then he'll come back to it and then he'll touch on that and then he'll reiterate it and then he'll come back to it later and touch on this. And sometimes it's like, you kind of have to step back and say, okay, what, what exactly are you trying to communicate here? Not to mention in this passage, he's pulling in multiple sources and multiple quotes. And so I I felt like maybe it would be helpful for us to reorder his statements a little bit to really kind of frame exactly what he's trying to say and why. So, so I've done that this morning, and we're going to walk through it, and there are a few things to remember. One is he's making this point in his sights right now. He's speaking directly to uh, a Jewish audience, okay, largely to a Jewish, Jewish audience. And so he pulls all of this really bold language from the Hebrew Scriptures. He's pulling from the prophets. He's pulling from the Psalms in a sense to communicate, look, I'm not just making this up on the spot. This isn't a new idea that I'm going to communicate to you. This has always been true, and the proof is that it was stated long ago in our own scriptures. This has always been true. But whereas the Jewish community might have had a tendency to use these passages or see these passages as only applying to others, those wicked others, proverbial others that are out there and are so wicked and evil while we are so righteous, while the Jews of his time may have had a propensity to do that, okay, these, yes, this describes wickedness, but it's for those people. Paul's going to turn it around and aim it directly at the Jews themselves. So, let's take a look at exactly what Paul is trying to say. And the first thing is this. Paul makes a charge, and it is the central theme of chapters 1 through 3 of Romans. And the charge is this. No one is righteous. No one is righteous. 3.9, already established, all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. 3.10, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God, no one does good, not even one, all have turned aside. Over and over, reiterating, reiterating, over and over, no one is good. No one is righteous before God. Okay, so you might ask, 
in a courtroom setting, by what standard are we deemed unrighteous? Go ahead to the next slide. By what standard, Paul, do you make such accusations? The standard of the testimony of the revealed character and will of God. That is the law. So verse 320, through the law comes knowledge of sin. This is something that Paul's going to come back to later in his letter to the Romans. His understanding of sin. As the law was brought into the world, he now understands how guilty he is because he sees his sin in contrast to the standard that God has established. God has revealed to us, this is my character, this is my will, this is what it means to honor me, this is what it means to follow me. Do this. And Paul understands, I, I haven't. I haven't done that at all. And so through the entrance of the law, through the giving of the law, Paul understands, his, he, he finds a name for his sin and it's made clear. So through the law comes knowledge of sin so that every mouth may be stopped. This is indisputable evidence against the unrighteousness or against the righteousness of, of humankind. Is indisputable. No, nobody has a defense against it. This is the revealed will of God that we are tested against so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be accountable to God. Okay, Paul, um, so, so what evidence do you have that, that this is the case? Well, it's everywhere. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And he could go on and on and on and on, as could all of we, if we were honest about the condition of our world. The evidence is everywhere. Okay, Paul, well, uh, what's the motive? What, what's the motive for this crime? Well, it's simple. Self-righteous pride. There is no fear of God before their eyes. We have made ourselves God. We have no reverence, awe, or submission of God. We've rejected him. We've rejected his rightful authority. We've placed ourselves above him. We've placed our own will above his, and we've gone our own way. And we want to do that. That is what drives us all the time. The elevation of self. The fulfilling of self. And it drives us away into unrighteousness. Okay, so, so where do we stand? We stand guilty and separated from God. By works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Romans 3.20. So here's where we stand. No one is righteous because through the law comes knowledge of sin and in it we are shown we are all sinful. And no one will be justified through works of the law in his sight because no one fully adheres to the law. We are all sinful. No one will be justified, which means no one will be declared righteous. None of us on our own, left to our own devices, are righteous before God. Martin Luther puts a, I think, fantastic exclamation point on this truth when he says this. As long as a person thinks he's right, he's going to be incomprehensibly proud and presumptuous. He's going to hate God, despise his grace and mercy, ignore the promises in Christ. The gospel 
which is the free forgiveness of sins through Christ, will never appeal to the self-righteous. This monster of self-righteousness, this stiff-necked beast, needs a big axe. And that's what the law is, a big axe. Man, what a profound truth that is. And, and I love the language that Luther uses. There's actually language I didn't include here, which is even a little bit stronger from Martin Luther. But this language of our self-righteousness being a huge ugly monster that is difficult to take down. So this is what Paul is describing, what we might call our our natural state, left to our own apart from Christ. This is where we stand. No one is righteous, no not one, because no one has or does live up to the moral will of God as he's revealed it to us. Well, a cynic might say that Paul, like a good salesman, is overstating his case, right? He's exaggerating the problem because he has a solution that he wants to sell. A cynic might look at these first chapters of Romans and say, boy, uh, it's not that bad, and really view Paul's language, Paul's heightened language, as sort of like the, kind of like the black and white sequence at the beginning of an infomercial where someone's trying to do some mundane task but can't do it, like open a jar and it blows up on them, and you say, okay, I understand you're trying to sell a jar opener, that's not that bad. In real life, it's not that bad. You're just exaggerating it because you want to sell something to us. And perhaps you're sitting there thinking to yourself, geez, that, um, that's a pretty pessimistic view of humanity and a pretty harsh view of God, Paul. And, and I think those types of questions are, are, are pretty common, maybe even in this room. And so I think it's important for us to unpack just a bit more uh, how we are to understand our natural state according to scripture. And uh, I find that and when, when addressing that topic, when illustrating where we are apart from Christ, I find it helpful to start with this truth. The world is not as it should be. The world is not as it should be. And I like to start with that truth because everybody knows that it's true. Everybody throughout all of history, in every generation, in every culture, knows, feels, deep down, believes there's something wrong. This world right now is is not as it should. There's something that needs to get fixed. Something has gone wrong. And people in every generation try to figure out what's wrong and how it's going to get better. And in every generation, there's cycles of diagnosing, oh, this is the problem, and this is the solution. Now, oh, actually, that didn't work. This is the problem, and this is the solution. That didn't work either. This is the problem. This is the solution. And our current dominant worldview that we live in is one of secular humanism, which has this supremely optimistic view of humankind and and our potential. And within it, there's this belief that we are inherently good. If we could just, there's just some things kind of oppressing us, systems or moral codes or something. And if we could just get rid of those things, and if we could just get the right systems in place that mobilize people, man, we're just going to flourish and human goodness is just going to come to its potential and we're going to build our own utopia. And, And you'll see this dialogue, you'll see even that particular language or that particular idea playing out in really all over the place. 
and I was in the line uh, at Sprouts to buy my groceries, and I saw this magazine called The Intelligent Optimist, right? Which basically appeals to this idea. Hey, we're smart people. Let's get the smart people together, not the dumb people. Let's get the smart people together, and let's be optimistic about our potential, and we'll get some stuff figured out. We'll be golden. We'll right this ship. Well, honestly, I'm not going to spend too much time on it because really that, that mentality or that belief is it's just far too easy to discredit. The, the belief that human beings are inherently good and we're headed in the right direction and we're just on the cusp of figuring it out and we're almost there and everything's going to be good, it, it's nonsense. It's nonsense. 400 million people died in genocide and war in the 20th century. Some people estimate that's more than in any other, than in all the wars previous to 1900, okay? That is a ridiculous stat. 1.2 billion people in the world live in extreme poverty. We're, we're not more just. We're not more caring. We're not more equitable. Sure, there have been a lot of things that are to be celebrated. There has been a lot of progress, but we have not diagnosed the root problem if we think it's just structures that are holding us back. And that's because the root problem is human sin. The world is not as it should be because human beings have rejected their creator and the wisdom he has for life and their relationship with him. The world is not as it should be because humankind and all of creation is no longer in harmony with its creator as it was meant to be. There's a quote I want to share with you uh, by a gentleman named Cornelius Plantiga that I think illustrates this in, in wonderful language. Um, and it says this, Near the beginning of our history, we human beings broke the harmony of paradise and began to live against our ultimate good. As Genesis 3 through 4 reveal, from nearly the beginning we have rebelled against God and then fled from God. We once had a choice, now we have a near compulsion. At least that's what we have without the grace of God to set us free. Over the centuries, we humans have ironed this near compulsion with the result that each new generation enters a world that had long ago lost its Eden and a world that is now half ruined by the billions of bad choices and millions of old habits congealed into thousands of cultures across all the ages. In this world, even the saints discover in exasperation that whenever they want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Quoting from Romans 7. Just a profound, true picture of our condition. But when we look at that, it's very easy for us to admit, okay, yeah, I get it. Um, human sin is the problem, but it's, human, it's a few bad apples that ruin the bunch, right? There's a few bad apples that impose some negative structures that we just need to get rid of on society. If we could just get rid of those and minimize the influence of the bad ones, we're all going to be good, right? It's very easy for us to say, okay, yeah, human sin is a problem, if not the problem, but it's other people's sin, and just a few people, they're the bad ones, not me. And to this, um, there's an anecdote that I share far too often, more often than I should, but it's just because it just rings in my head. And it's one of my favorite anecdotes. And it's G.K. Chesterton, one of the authors I love to read. Um, in 1908, the Times newspaper in London asked different authors in the area, in England, to write an essay in response to the question, what's wrong with the world? 
Get perspective from all these different authors. What's wrong with the world? Put it in your eloquent prose like you can because you're the best authors of our time. Chesterton responds, and his answer is profound, and I'm sure the shortest of all the answers. And he says this. Dear sir, regarding your article, What's Wrong with the World? I am. Yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. What a profound truth that is. Here's what he understood that oftentimes we don't get. We're quick to point out sin in other people. We're quick to point out negative systems and structures that are out there that are holding everything back. But we never acknowledge the sin that's in here. The problem is not out there. The problem's in here for every single one of us. And we need, we depend upon the Holy Spirit to open our eyes to it because like I said before, in our sin, we are pridefully defensive and we don't want to admit our sin. And as the Holy Spirit humbles us and regenerates us, we're honest with the reality of our sin maybe for the first time in our lives. And we understand that our sin is an offense against God first and foremost. The problem's not out there, the problem is in here. I'm telling you, the amount of darkness I see in my own heart is frightening. The amount of rage I can feel for a per- when, when I'm pulling into a parking spot or there's a parking spot I want and I go to pull in and there's a car in the one next to it sitting, and the person sitting there with their door open blocking the parking spot, the amount of rage I can feel towards that person is terrifying, okay? There is darkness in my heart. And how does it go? We were talking about this backstage. How does it go? I think to myself, I can't believe how selfish that person is. I can't believe how selfish that person is. How evil they are to sit in their car with their door open. They should know that I'm the center of the universe and now I'm here. And they should move out of the way because my will is what matters, right? Now that's a humorous, pretty inconsequential example. There are a lot of examples that all of us could point to in our own lives, in our own hearts, where we harbor bitterness and anger, pride, that just destroys us and it destroys the people around us. The problem's not out there, the problem's in here. And then collectively, that's the problem. This does not mean, of course, that um, all people are as evil as they could be all the time. And by God's grace, he, he restrains evil in many ways. Uh, many people do things, believers and unbelievers alike, that have aspects of goodness to them. And, and we can cheer when people sacrificially bless one another, okay? We don't need to walk around just condemning everyone around us all the time. There are some things to celebrate and cheer. There is goodness in this world. There's remnants of God's good creation and remnants of the image of God that surface and we can see it and we can celebrate it. But here's the truth, two truths that we need to remember. All of our actions are laced with selfish motives. There are so many things that we do and so many things that we point to where we say, I cannot believe how selfless and giving that person is. When if we dug deep, we would realize that there was a thread or even a stream of selfishness that was driving that action. From the outside, we think, oh man, a loving, selfless act. And inside the person's like, I just wanted credit for doing something good. I just wanted to look good in front of this person. I just wanted this. I just wanted that. All 
all of our actions are laced with selfishness and sin. And the second thing is, nothing we do, no matter how good, can restore our righteousness before God. Nothing we do can restore, we, we cannot fix what has been undone on our own. And the real depressing truth about all this, because you're so up right now, is that Paul tells us, and he goes into this more in, in chapter six, we are not only sinners, we are enslaved to sin. We are in bondage to sin. We have a compulsion to sin, and we are unable to free ourselves. We are in bondage to a master that is leading us to death. Okay, how's that for your uplifting news this morning? We are in bond and left on our own in our natural state apart from Christ. We are in bondage to a master which is sin that is leading us to death. Um, I'll share another quote from you. This is again from Plantinga that I think illustrates this well. He says, The Bible's account of the human predicament is that from the start we've been choosing wrong. We've kept on perverting and polluting God's gifts. And it's not just that each of us commits individual sins, telling lies, for example, or plagiarizing a paper. The situation is much more serious than this. By sinning, we not only grieve God and our neighbor, we also wreck our own integrity. We are like people whose abuse of alcohol ruins not only our liver, but also their judgment and their will, the things that might have kept them from further abuse of alcohol. The same pattern holds for everybody. We now sin because we are sinners, because we have a habit, and because habit has damaged our judgment and will. We're going to talk much more about this as we study the book of Romans, as we study the nature of our guilt and our inherited sin. All of these things we'll unpack in much greater detail further in our study. But here's the truth that faces us right now. Here's our condition, apart from Christ, left to our own. We are unwilling and unable to restore our righteousness. We are unable to free ourselves from sin, unable to make our way back to God, unable to set the world right that we know is broken. Ephesians 2 tells us we are dead in our sin. Here's the truth. Our condition is the very definition of, of needing a savior, okay? It is the very definition of needing a savior. That is where we are, left to our own, in our natural state. Now, there's an argument that I come across a lot, a humanist argument that is often made, that says, that believes, that the problem with Christians is that they're always relying on and waiting on some savior out there instead of just taking responsibility for their conditions and just taking upon themselves to better the situation. So there's this view that, man, Christians are the problem because the world's falling apart around them and they're like, well, Jesus is going to fix it instead of saying, I'm going to fix the situation and pulling themselves up by their bootstraps and, not, and taking responsibility for their actions and their condition and making it better. And to that, I would say a couple things. The first is, that view obviously has no Godward orientation, which is the problem in the first place. 
There's no fear of God before their eyes. That's the root issue, okay? And so right there we see a problem. And the second thing is this. Um, Christians, more than anyone, take responsibility for their actions. Christians, more than anyone, take responsibility for our condition because we recognize our condition is brought on by our sin, by my sin and your sin. Christians who have the Holy Spirit illuminating their eyes, illuminating their mind and their hearts to the truth of sin and the darkness of sin and who are honest about it take responsibility for their condition. But we recognize that we have not and cannot set things right on our own. We need help. And that's what sets us apart. It's not that we're ducking responsibility and it's not that we're saying, oh, we don't care if things change. We don't really want restoration. We do, just like everybody else, but we recognize the problem is us and we need help. And so we turn to our creator, the source of life and power himself. But we realize that it's he that we've rejected and offended. It's God himself that our unrighteousness is an offense towards. And so we confess our sin. And in humility we go to him and we confess and we're honest. We take responsibility before our God who we rejected for our condition. And in him, and in that we find grace and forgiveness and restoration with our creator. Not only that, we find power to conquer the one thing that keeps humanity in shackles, and that's sin. In Christ's sinless life, death, and resurrection, he broke the bonds of sin freeing us from our slavery to sin so that we could be free to be restored, free to pursue righteousness and honor God. And in owning our own condition, repenting of it and going to God, finding forgiveness, finding power to be freed from sin and to pursue restoration, we also find a certain hope that our God is working to set things right and that one day everything will again be as it should be. So how then do we respond to this in closing? How, how do we respond to this, to this truth? The first thing is this. We absolutely cling to Christ because apart from him, we have no righteousness. We have no righteousness on our own and so at all costs, we cling to our Savior, Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul in his letter to the Philippians writes this, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ and the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul understood it clearly. I have no righteousness on my own. I've been trying to build this resume. I've been trying to earn my way back to God. I've been pursuing this track that I think is gonna set things right and it doesn't work. It's not, it hasn't worked. It's not going to work because I've never dealt with sin. I've never been honest about it. I've never gone to God and said, I am unrighteous and I need a savior. And God says, I know. I know. Come to me and find salvation and find hope. 
2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That is the most unfathomable, beautiful transaction in all of history. And we're going to talk about this later on in our study of Romans as well. On the cross, a transaction was made. Jesus Christ, God incarnate, sinless man, goes to the cross, takes upon himself my sin and your sin. Become, he who knew no sin became sin. Takes it upon himself. And in exchange, what do I get? I get his righteousness. That's the exchange that happens at the cross. You, me, all of us, the unrighteous, exchange our unrighteousness for Jesus' righteousness. And the crazy thing is sometimes we think the transaction that happens on the cross is that God just wipes out our debt and we start at neutral and then we just start, gotta, we gotta build our bank account again, right? Okay, you made some bad decisions, I'll forget those, do better this time, start building that bank account again and then we'll, we'll talk later, we'll see how you did. That's not the transaction that's made. It's not that we're just brought back to neutral, we are brought into righteousness so that we are now righteous before the Father. Can you, can you get your mind around? I'm not sure we can. It's completely unfair in the most beautiful way, right? And so we sing, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness, right? The old hymn. Second thing we do to respond is this. Maybe somewhat ironically, we pursue righteousness. We fight sin with everything that we have. Because as the Holy Spirit opens our eyes to our condition, and as the Holy Spirit shows us just how dark our hearts are, we want nothing more than to rid our lives of sin. We want nothing more than to see sin destroyed in every corner of our lives, our hearts, our family, our neighbor. We just, we hate it when we see it for what it is. We want nothing more than God's restoration once we've tasted it. And so the mark of a mature Christian is this. The mark of a mature Christian is awareness and sorrow over their own sin. And that awareness and sorrow over your own sin drives you to repentance, which drives you to an ever-increasing thankfulness for the grace that you have in Jesus Christ which fuels a joyful pursuit of obedience and righteousness. And the crazy thing is, as we pursue obedience and righteousness, we remain more aware of our sin. And the cycle continues. And we continue to grow, and we continue to get purified. It's what we call sanctification. And we understand what Keller means when he says we can say that we are more wicked than we ever dared believe, but more loved and accepted in Christ than we ever dared hope at the very same time. And the follower of Christ sees clearly and sees clearer and clearer just how deep their sin goes. And as they do, the cross becomes more and more beautiful. Martin Luther said the gospel, the free forgiveness of sins through Christ will never appeal to the self-righteous. But for the person for whom the Holy Spirit has opened their eyes 
to the reality of their condition and their desperate need, there could be nothing more beautiful. Let's pray. Father, this morning we are humbled. We thank you that um, that your word is honest with us about our condition and that you have illuminated and illustrated our desperate, desperate need so that we don't fall into a false assurance. Lord, I pray that you would help all of us to see the sin in our own lives. Lord, I pray that the people in this room who have never been honest with themselves and never been honest with you about the condition of their own heart, about their need for a Savior, I pray that you would impress that upon them now. And I pray that you would help them understand that there is forgiveness and grace and freedom and restoration found on the other side of that acknowledgement when we confess it and when we come to you. And Lord, for those of us who, who love you and know you and follow you, Lord, I pray that we would grow in sorrow over our own sin. I pray that we would be quick to repent. I pray that you'd give us increasing thankfulness for the grace that we have in you. And Father, I pray that you would just continue, continue to shape us and teach us and restore your image in us. We are so grateful for the grace that we have. We are so grateful that you saved us, not because of anything we did, but in your amazing grace and tremendous mercy, we thank you. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.